Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas. And today I have Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt, Mike Pikarski. Mike graduated from Binghamton University in New York with a bachelor's degree. And during this time, he found MMA and began competing, eventually turning professional while competing in Muay Thai and submission grappling. After he began his professional MMA career, he decided to shift his focus, return to school, and earn his doctorate in physical therapy. Upon completion of graduate school, Mike moved to Los Angeles and earned his black belt in jiu-jitsu and became a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist by the American Physical Therapy Association. Today, you can find Dr. Kickass, is Dr. underscore Kickass on Instagram, sharing his knowledge to over 30,000 followers. So Dr. Kickass, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I was mentioning before that a good friend of mine that was a, a guest on episode 125, uh, Greg McClarty from Control Physical Therapy in Scottsdale, Arizona. He is the one that told me to check it out. I wasn't familiar with the, with the, uh, with the profile, so I started following. So pretty cool. A lot of good information. I'm going to have the link, too, for everyone that would like to check it out. So awesome information, man. So let's, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, before your beginning of jiu-jitsu. Let's just talk about your Instagram. When did you start the, the profile and how did it actually come about? So I think I started four or five years ago. Um, and I remember um, it, was, it was very interesting because I was, you know, I was rolling with some people and, um, I like using leg locks. I've always done leg locks. Um, you know, and I remember I, I you know, I, I went for like a straight ink lock against, I was, I think I was a brown belt at the time and I was going with a purple belt. He tapped super quick and he's like, Oh, I don't play that leg stuff. I'm like thinking, I'm like, dude, this is a straight ink lock. This is legal in like white belt kids divisions, you know? And I was like, you know, it's interesting. I'm like, you know, leg locks have this like stigma and people just don't really understand them. Right. Because they think heel hooks. And I think your knee's going to explode if you touch it. You know, so um, that was kind of like what inspired me. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to see what was going on. So I started doing some submission breakdowns of like, what's the difference between like a toe hold, a heel hook, an ankle lock. It was actually interesting because I first started and, you know, I like Instagram doesn't make sense. Like you can put in so much work in and it doesn't get any traction. And then you can put a, a post where you put like no time in and Anyway, so I was actually getting to the point where I was kind of frustrated. I think I did it for like two months and I was literally about to stop. Like I was like, this is kind of a waste of my time. Like nobody's seeing it. And then the, uh, the leg locker Instagram shared something. And then like, you know, like overnight, like my followers doubled. And then from there I was able to grow it. Um, so it was kind of a, it was kind of just like a unexpected thing that I, I did. I never anticipated that it was going to uh, expand to the degree that it has, um, and then I just, you know, I, you know, there was a point where I was just, uh, you know, a jujitsu guy, like, you know, I had all these injuries and I remember like, I had no health insurance when I was, when I was competing in MMA and I was always so freaked out. Like if I got an injury, like that's it, you know? So I kind of wanted to use my Instagram as like a, a platform to kind of educate people like, Hey, like this is kind of what's going on. Like, you know, uh, cause this type of information didn't exist when I was coming up for sure. Now let's go back and to beginning, beginning of your martial arts journey. When did martial arts show up in your life? So I start, I found uh, Brazil. Well, okay. Um, I had done like some Japanese jujitsu when I was in high school. Um, in hindsight, it wasn't really good. You know, I think the one thing I took away is I learned how to do a proper break fall. But other than that, it <laughs> uh, didn't really show anything. I had um, a knee injury when I was uh, a teenager. I was just like, you know, I kind of like wrestled around with a friend and my kneecap slid out of place. So, um, and it kept happening. So 
I ended up needing surgery. So that was kind of the end of my Japanese jujitsu. Like, I think I did like four months with it and then I needed knee surgery. So I had to stop. Um, the, the knee surgery that I had is something called a lateral release. And the idea was that they think that the structures on the outside of the knee were pulling my kneecap out of place. So they kind of trimmed it. They don't really do that surgery anymore because the outcomes aren't great. Like I still have a lot of quad weakness that I've been able to deal with, um, since I was a teenager. So, um, you know, fast forward about two years now I'm in college and I, I was like, all right, well, my knee's feeling good enough. I want to try to get back into a martial art. And I found a Brazilian jiu-jitsu group. And I was like, so this was, it was taught by a white belt. It, it was just like, you know, just a whole bunch of kids on a mat. But what I was year like, what's that? That was like 2005. Um, so, um, you know, so like, I, you know, I'd done some Japanese jiu-jitsu. I'm like, well, Japanese Brazilian jiu-jitsu might be similar. I remember the first day I go, I'm like, I finally real, I finally feel like I'm learning martial arts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You like after like I'm like everything that I learned previous was a complete waste of time. So again, like uh, like the instructor was a white belt, but again they did jujitsu. Eventually, um, during my um, my breaks, I found a uh, a purple belt who was about half an hour away from me. So during winter break and summer break, I started training with him. Um, before I went back in my so 2006, before I was going to go back to college. Um, I ended up getting my blue belt. So then I ended up started teaching in college. Um, and that was just, I mean, you know how jiu-jitsu is like you find it and fall in love with it. And you're like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. So what point is that around that time that you realize that, you know what, I'm going to be doing this for a long time. And right now, do you work with, uh, a lot of athletes or not necessarily just I work with every, like I'd work with with anyone, but obviously my specialty is working with athletes, uh, especially jujitsu athletes, just because I, you know, uh, I think there's very few people that have my degree of martial art experience and physical therapy experience. Like there's there's people who do jujitsu very very casually, so they kind of understand it, but they're usually like white or blue belt. I mean, there are the few exception of people that are that are more. Um, but, you know, a lot of times people come to me, they're like, well, I want to work with you because I understand exactly what they want to get back to. You know, when they go to see their their physician and they're like, well, how do you hurt your knee? Well, I went for a triangle, my knee popped like the They're like, well, what does that mean? Why would that happen? And I can understand. I'm like, OK, this makes sense. I understand it, you know. And then from a physical therapy standpoint, like let's say you have an injury, like I get very clear understanding, like you need to go do this, then this, then this, and then we can get you back. You know, a lot of times when you go see your physician, there's that general advice, which is, all right, I want you to lay off your injury. I want you to ice it and then go back in six months or six weeks. But what does that mean? Essentially, what they're doing is they don't understand the activity. So they're like, well, if I tell you to do nothing, most likely you won't re-injure it. You know, I mean, how many jiu-jitsu people do you know? They're like, so the class before, you know, they popped their elbow and like, how's your elbow? It's fine. It just popped a few times. And they're, they're like, you know, they, 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 they stick their hand into their belt, you know, and I have a little bit better understanding of, okay, what aspect of jiu-jitsu can you still do? Or is it time you actually do need to rest? And, and that kind of understanding. Yeah. So what point and what, uh, what point of your journey you started to get like real, I don't know if it was since the beginning that you start to get the correlation of grappling and, and, and submissions and like yeah. to start like really working together. So I think it wasn't until um, I actually had uh, graduated. So, you know, I, 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 at one point, my original plan was to do uh, open a gym, um, but I really didn't want to live in upstate New York because it's not really a very desirable area. You know, and I was like, well, what else could I do? And I was looking at personal training, but at the time I didn't have the um, kind of the, that like that social aspect of like, if you're a personal trainer, essentially you're selling yourself, right? You know, so, and then that's when uh, I was looking into physical therapy and I didn't really want to go back to school. And I started applying for physical therapy assistant jobs. And then I find out later that uh, that's actually like a separate license and degree. Mm-hmm. And then I decided, you know, maybe I want to go back to school, even though I didn't want to accrue debt. So I'm in school and 
I really didn't put the, them together, right? It wasn't until I, I graduated when I was like, oh, I can actually work with jujitsu athletes. And, you know, and then I realized that there really wasn't a lot of information about how to treat the jujitsu athlete or the kickboxer or the, the MMA fighter. And then, you know, the, the more that I started to, you know, put two together, I realized that I had this very specialized uh, niche that um, very few people could fill. Yeah, and this man, what you mentioned is really it's huge of yeah. having someone that understands like what is going on, you know, especially uh, grappling wise. Because yeah, as you mentioned, people are like, all right, stop training uh, when they don't say like you should never grapple again. You know, that's one of those too, right? Yeah, yeah. I re I remember like I think I was a white belt, and of course I tap late to an arm my elbow pops I go see, I think this was when I was in college and I go see like the school physician and they're like they're asking me questions they're like yeah you know like I think you should stop I'm like wait I should stop I'm like yeah like it doesn't sound like it's good I'm like like but, but generally what happens if, if you go to a physician and they say um all right this is what happened I think you should stop martial arts like you're just going to find somebody else like you're like this person clearly doesn't understand sports and athletics mm -hmm. I'm going to find somebody else I'm not going to listen to that person you know so it just, like I said, it's just, it's, it's crazy um, how much the sport is growing. Um, so obviously I, I feel that, you know, combat sports are becoming much more mainstream, but still like on the medical aspect, that's still lacking quite a bit. It's interesting. Uh, when I, when I look back into my, my journey, I'll be 47 in a couple of weeks. And I remember when I was sort of training, I started training at 14. So when I was 15, Around that time, just I think I remember it's around the first time I ever got my my arm popped in training, right? So I at home and like, hey mom, this happened, this and that. So she is concerned, takes me to a clinic. They look and say, okay, ice, ibuprofen, and don't do anything for two weeks or whatever. Yeah. And then whenever it happened again, and then told my mom, and then the same thing happened, like do this. By the third time, I'm like, I'm not telling my mom and I'm not going there, <laughs> you know? So, and I, and I don't know if it's a, I don't think it's a necessarily a good thing, but I just build it in like something like, unless it's really bad, you yeah. know, I'll tell her. If not, I'll just deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting you say that because I think that's a, a common misconception with a lot of grapplers. For the most part, like what we do, if you think about it, like we take our joints and we bend them ways they're not supposed to go. like. Even if like we we tap, like it's still probably jujitsu probably still isn't great for our body, right? And you know, like I'm guilty of this too. Be like, oh, my ankle popped, I'm good to go. But here's the thing is that pop was something, like it wasn't nothing. It might not be bad enough that you need to see a medical professional, but sometimes it is, yeah. you know? And that's kind of like where, uh, one of the, the roles that I feel is like, when do you actually need to see somebody and when do you don't, right? You know, because I think, you know, I was thinking about this, if you take like a competitor is as time goes on, they're getting more experience, they're getting better at technical level, but their body's starting to deteriorate, right? Mm -hmm. Because they start to accumulate all of these chronic injuries, you know, and even for me with what I know, like I still have some chronic injuries of things that, you know, like even with my experience, I can't get hundred percent, but I can understand how to compensate, but that starts to add up. And that's usually when someone has to retire because they can't, train the way that they need to be able to compete right you know so here's the thing is you know you get your elbow popped once twice but maybe after a while now your elbow is a little bit loose and now it's easier for it to pop then what happens is then you start to develop these these changes in your elbow i'm, I'm sure you, you've seen a lot of black belts that can't straighten their elbow because they've had their elbows pop too much and at some point you wait too long like that's not a physical therapy thing like that's a surgery thing where they have to like clean out the elbow where you actually get these little um osteophytic changes into the bone you know so i mean that, that's just the most common chronic injury i see in black belts they're like i can't straighten my elbow anymore I'm like that's not a good thing <laughs> yeah and it's interesting to mention about that because some people have like man i don't know my knees my shoulders my my gig is elbows. I don't know what the problem is, but I had surgery before. I dislocated three times. I broke it wow. twice, you know? So <laughs> that's something that, you know, over time I abused. Yeah. And as you get older, you start to kind of like understanding. Course, but yeah. Uh, yeah, one of the things you I want you to talk about is this, the, um, uh, you mentioned about fairly young athletes putting a lot of load mm -hmm. into, their body. I, one example, I have one of my students, 
um, Orlando Montero, he got a school. He's in uh, in Hawaii now, mm-hmm. in Kona, and he's just coming back from uh, his back was like really wrecked for four months. And this guy, for him not to train, it needs to be like he's officially injured, you know. But I've been telling him for a long time, like, dude, you need to calm down and like train too much load. And then he, uh, he was mentioned the day that he hurt, like, that was the last set I should have done. I was like, do you think the last set that did it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, you, oh, you, I you've been putting loads of yeah. like, you know, strength and conditioning and, and, and getting upside down, getting stacked, you know, for like over 10 years, you know, yeah, like yeah. 13 years. At some point, the bill will come and oftentimes expensive, you know what I mean? Expensive yeah. to your body. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what do you recommend for people who are listening and they, they kind of just get that like, I'm tough mentality, keep grinding no matter what, da, 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 da. what do you think? Well, I mean, obviously you have to kind of respect injuries and you have to think that there's like, okay, so. And have athletes and hobbyists too, you know, they yeah, yeah. You. you have to think that you have to look at your jujitsu game and what you're doing and is your body ready for what you're doing? And I think inverting is a perfect example is, do you need to invert to be good jiu-jitsu? You don't. Does everyone have the spine where they should be inverting? Meaning, you know, there's a lot of people that are really stiff is maybe that they shouldn't be doing it. Because if you think about it, when you invert, if you do like a grand B roll, you're really not rolling over your neck, you're rolling over your, your shoulders. But if your neck doesn't go all the way down, you're, you're going to load that neck, right? So now you try to invert rolling under somebody and then they drop their weight down. Now you're just putting a lot of stress on their neck because you don't have the proper mobility. Then you can look at like the, like the, the lumbar spine or the low back too. Same thing. Like you, you do stuff and, and I'm guilty of this too. Like I can, you know, wrap someone up in a triangle and I let them stack me. And I'm like, I don't really care, but now I'm in my mid thirties. And now sometimes I care when people do that. Like, <laughs> it's just like one of those points, like it wasn't that just like you said, it wasn't that last time that did it is over and over and over again. So I think it's really important for one, people to kind of like look at their game and see, should they be doing what they're doing, right? Because if you don't have the mobility to do, like, so again, in addition to like the spine, you can look at a lot of guard. Um, I think that jujitsu requires abnormal hip mobility. Just if you want to have an effective open guard, you know, like you play a lasso guard, spider guard, triangles, like your hips need to be able to move in a lot of different positions. You also have to think like a lot of passes about killing those hips. So a lot of times you have to be kind of strong in these kind of weird ranges, right? Because you need to be able to move people. So first look at your game. Should you be doing the game that you're playing? Second, I think it's really important for people to include some kind of strength, conditioning, and mobility routine into their their life, right? Because your jujitsu is physical, but it's your body doesn't care that you want to do jujitsu. Is what are you doing to maintain your body so that you can also do jujitsu? If you look at the literature, the thing that's um, the most important aspect of injury prevention it's strength training in some capacity. Um, I think stretching doesn't get a good, um, isn't really um, encouraged as much in literature, but in my opinion, it's, if you take stretching, you know, like when people just stretch after class, they're just kind of stretching arbitrary aspects of their body, not necessarily things that they need to be doing for jujitsu. Like, are they doing hip stretches? Are they doing different shoulder stretches? Usually when you watch people stretch, they kind of like stretch their hamstring. I'm like, do you really need to be doing that? And again, that comes with an assessment. So, you know, if you don't have the, the mobility to do the game that you want, you need to be able to get that. Once you have the adequate mobility to handle all of the, the activities you need to do within jujitsu, that's when I would do a lot of strength and conditioning. You know, again, make sure you're strong in, in these positions. Conditioning is important. I mean, like, I'm sure you've been there just like the injuries you were talking about. How many times do people get hurt on that last round, right? Because when you're fatigued, you're more prone to get hurt because now you're weak, right? So I think it's important to have adequate you know, conditioning. And and again, it all comes down to time, whether you're a competitor or a hobbyist, not everyone has the time, but I would say from a conditioning standpoint that just rolling isn't always the best thing to, to maintain conditioning, right? Like it, it, it just comes down to, you know, look at that person. Do they need more conditioning, strength, and mobility? I won't know until I do an assessment. Um, but I think that everyone should include some aspect of, of those things in their daily routine. Got it. I, I, was, I listened 
recently someone saying, um, from what you're saying, I'm gathering that it's more like individual cannot generalize, but do you feel related to back injuries? Yeah. Do you feel like lighter competitors and heavier competitors struggle different? Like someone a heavier, maybe it's lower back and the other one's more cervical because yeah. they're stag getting stacked or right. upside down a little more? Yeah. I mean, if you look at like a lot of the lower, uh, lighter competitors, you're going to see more, you, you, you don't see, you see like more fast guard passing versus heavy smash pass. Yeah. More people who are going to invert um, versus like, you're looking like the big guys, like they're generally going to be more pressure passers. They're generally are not going to have like, um, you know, like an inverting guard. It's really going to be who gets on top is going to win. I mean, that's just, again, in general, right. Yeah. You know, um, but then there are some people there are obviously there are those exceptions of those big guys who can play the small game and there are small players that can be pressure passers. But yeah, I'd say on average, you know, you're going to see a difference based on um, the weight classes and then the game that you play. Okay. So now I have a question um, for people who are listening to, and for you, people don't know, I've been promoting events for over 20 years here in Arizona. So now my question is regarding to kids, because we follow the IBJJF rules. So mm -hmm. kids, they have like dif different organizations have different rules. Uh, many times, uh, not many times, but when IBJJF over the years, they've been doing their, their rules because maybe kids got injured. It's an injury that is happening often. So yeah. that's basically how they kind of been making uh, the rules. So I want to say kids, uh, it's 15 and under officially at IBJJF. What would you say that it's like, in your opinion, but like, mechanically speaking, what would be like a big no-nos be like, yeah, I think it'd be bad if the kids don't have this specific submissions or moves. Do you, do you uh, feel there are certain positions that it should be avoided? What do you think? I would probably say jumping guard now, mm -hmm. obviously here's the thing is like it's different kids and adults you know there's the the medical professional and then there's the competitor from a martial art competitor i think a lot of things should be legal um but obviously it's it's kind of like that that risk and reward i think jumping guard just one of those ones it's just like i mean you could just see those terrible situations people jump guard you know and the thing is like with kids like let's say someone jumps guard and then they collapse on the person's knee Ooh, depending on it. how yeah it's good yeah depending on how old that kid is, like if that kid's still going through puberty, they can't always go, go get an ACL reconstruction because they're too young. If, if, if the surgeon does like an ACL reconstruction while the growth plates open, it's actually going to damage them. So they have to kind of like do like altered things. You know, it's like, uh, I think there was like an EBI. This might've been, this was, this was like an early EBI. I don't, I don't know how long EBI has been around, but like they were having kids matches, but they were like all matches legal. And it was like these two 15 year old girls and like someone goes for a heel hook. And it was like one girl got her knee exploded. And then everyone was like, maybe we, we shouldn't let heel hooks be legal to these kids, you know? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's stuff like that. But I, I would say that uh, jumping guard would be the big one. I would say for the most part, Elbow locks are pretty common injuries, but I would say that they're usually not devastating, right? Because it's like usually like someone applies arm lock, you wait a little bit, it's like pop, 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 pop. So like you have a, like a few warning signs. Now that first pop might not be devastating. Obviously it's not good, but it's usually like you're in that for a bit before you, you see those elbow dislocations. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of the challenges that referees will have and yeah. like this, this week, we just had a tournament here and someone was talking with me i was like man you know i love the refs but i feel that they're stopping a little too soon and i understand where they're coming from but now sometimes get that balance of because when they stop before people complain he didn't tap and if they hold and they tap and now they're crying they got hurt why he didn't stop before yeah. you know so this is something that i, I kind of happens but it's something they uh usually they try to avoid the tap out and one thing is for sure too is they don't know um their limit you know how far it's like how far is really bad yeah. you know and by the time they figure it out it's like pat, pat, pat. i saw a video once of a it uh, was an ogi tournament disc in and that was like 10 years old or something 11 it was really bad or like 
uh, they allowed uh, Nibar in this, this, this division. And you can see the other kid had no clue what was coming or that even existed. The kid yeah. was pulling his leg. He, you know, next thing he's like, ow, something is hurting. I don't even know that I'm supposed to tap to this. So that yeah. was really bad in still having like, you know, yeah. coach, you know, chest bumping the kid, you know, like, it's like, yeah, that's kind of brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think obviously, I think with kids, it's a little bit different. Like, I think adult and kids have to go by different. I, I would, I don't have kids, but I would, I understand why people would side more on the safe side with dealing with, you know, kids, just because from a, from like a ref standpoint, like there are people that are double jointed, but the ref doesn't yeah. know that you yes. are double jointed yeah. for a yeah. normal person. So yeah, yeah I, I'd probably say like, be more on the safe side with kids, adults, especially like, especially like Brown and black belt. Like I think by then, like you kind of know what you're getting into, you know what I mean? So like for the, those are the people that I might would be a little bit more, um, let the athlete kind of decide their injury, right? Like I think a perfect example I forget, was it Felipe Pena versus uh, Hamala Baral, where I think it was like a semifinal in Worlds. I think it was Pena. And uh, Pena had uh, Baral in a really, really deep ankle lock. Uh, sorry, toehold. Oh, a- it was uh, Patrick Gaudio, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. think it was him, Patrick yeah. Gaudio. Yeah. Oh, that, you're right. You're right. Okay. So, um, so anyway, Brawl gets his ankle dislocated. Everyone's like, oh man, he's really stupid. But it's like, we have to realize that that was the semifinals of Worlds. Yeah. He's a black belt. Like, he knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was like, you know what? I want the chance to get a world champion. I am going to sacrifice my ankle for that. You know, it's, it's one of those things where like he made his decision. Yeah. You know, like, he's not mad at, at Gaudio for Papa's ankle. Like, he knew what was happening. It's like, like that's a case where it's like, let the athlete do what they want to do. Like, you know, for certain tournaments, like world champion ADCC medals, like, you know, like, you know, it's like a, it's for history, you know, it's it just kind of, it's up to the athlete, how much they're willing to risk their body. For sure. And uh, in 2015, I had, a, um, I started like a, 2015, I just, um, I was 14 or 15. I was um, I was turning uh, forty and I have one of those um, the mid uh, mid age crisis I guess <laughs> so I was like man I wanna I wanna try to give it a shot to compete in the adults again and that that kind of stuff and I said uh, maybe I would like to try to do the adult worlds and then my incentive was they created those points those ranking points so like i like that because i don't like the idea of if this is the peak of the sport you can just sign up and kind of go in you know what i mean i, I like the idea of having like you know a qualification like they used to have back in brazil before the until 2006 you need to have a qualification 2007 they they stopped that when they came to the us so that was my motivation I'm like okay i'm going to do a tournament if i do well and I feel like I can't perform, not necessarily I win, but I feel like, can I perform? You know what I mean? I, I can try. So uh, I end up uh, signing up for one of the opens, uh, Long Beach Open. So I end up doing well, end up uh, winning my division. So it's like, cool. I, I, you know, I can't. So I started my, uh, like a sequence of tournaments to try to uh, score some points. And, and I had my old injury that I had already arthritis in my my left elbow because I dislocated before like a very bad injury so as I start to travel cut weight and then doing more and more the arms are getting worse and worse and worse and got to a point that uh, uh my last tournament um and it got a basically it was a partial tear on my elbow and and I finally got the points to go to the worlds in 2015 so that was three weeks before so now it is the point that he said, like, the athlete needs to make the choice. So if, and especially if you're listening at home and you are a competitor, of course, there's always different contexts. But if you had this goal and you said all oh, this, and as soon as you get there, like, this injury here, you can go. But if you go, you can, you, it may get worse. You know what yeah. I mean? So you need to make the choice. So at that moment, I said, like, from what I've been through for the past seven to eight months like i am willing to take the the risk and actually compete so i just 
I could literally could not roll the past the, the two weeks before the tournament. It was just a lot of drilling, some swimming. It was really inflamed. It was really bad. So anyway, I ended up uh, winning my first match. I didn't feel my arm. It was okay. And then a the second match in the first minute, I felt a little shift. Uh, I was going with uh, GT Taurus. Oh, yeah. I felt a little, a little shift, a light one. I was like, ooh, something happened. But I kept going. And then, so he passed my guard. I'm trying to turn all fours. And my elbow just went like, wow, just yeah. out. So that was really bad. This one ended up having a surgery that they have. They get that uh, uh, part of the, the tendon on the wrist and put in, a, in the elbow. Mm -hmm. Tommy John. Yeah, Tommy, Tommy John. John. Yeah. So I did that one. So that was uh, intense. I never had anything that was a full year. I tried to get back within 10 months and I was not ready. Yeah, like yeah, I yeah. felt like training. I was like, dude, yeah, I felt weird. Like this is not ready. Yeah. So, so then uh, this happened. But then, uh, so I made that decision of, okay, I, I don't regret. Now this year, I was signed up for the Master Worlds in about, Three weeks before, I was already doing physical therapy because I've been. I started feeling my knee four months ago, like that little thing, like ah, it's bothering me, but yeah. I can't train. So since I'm older and know better, like I better start treating right now because as I pick up training, this is gonna get worse. Yeah, yeah. And and then start getting a little worse, a little worse. Uh, and then finally, three weeks before uh the tournament, I I got up from training and I'm like oh something happens and then next day I got an MRI so I, I torn my meniscus okay. so on this specific situation I'm like this context does not motivate can I compete yeah. <laughs> sure I mean yeah I wasn't gonna be able to uh, to train you know that time or whatever I could just really go for it but like it's not gonna prove me anything I'm the context was very different than the other one. Yeah. So uh, like I'm not willing to take this this simple surgery that yeah. you know can get a lot more complicated. With that said, uh, talking about meniscus, of course every situation is different. So how do you feel? I think it's a uh, this is a big topic. How do you feel about uh, the meniscus injury? As far as when they say like the longer recovery, you just cut it a piece of it. So what do you? What's your opinion on? Um, meniscus tears. Well, okay. So first, we have to think about whether surgery is warranted versus not. Now, anytime there's a surgery, I think it is a good idea to get multiple opinions because there's certain surgeons that are like a little surgery happy. Like you have to think that every medical professional has a certain bias. I'm a physical therapist. I'm going to side with the more conservative approach first. Surgeon, like surgeons, want to do surgery, right? So it's good to get a second opinion just to make sure it's something that needs surgery versus rehab. When it comes to a meniscus, um, the big thing that I'm looking for would be locking and catching. So if like, let's say you're like, my knee doesn't move. Like it's literally, there's something, something blocked. That'd be like a bucket handle tear. Like that's a surgery thing. You can't rehab that. Um, there's certain things you have to be careful of like a, a root tear where if the meniscus is torn at the root, um, if they just trim that, it's, it's like you have no meniscus. So it's one of those things like you want to take that really seriously. and You, you do want to get that address. You don't want to ignore it. So first you want to see, again, are you that person? Because there, there's a lot of people that like you've been doing jiu-jitsu a long time. You could have had more of a degenerated meniscus, meaning like it wasn't like your knee tore because you did something. It was just like yeah. you, you jiu-jitsu over and over again. Like that's something where it's like, well, maybe you try to rehab that versus like, let's say, you know, like you're in, you know, you, you kind of like force a knee slice pass, ah, knee pops. Like that's more of an acute tear. That's kind of like sometime where I might say, okay, maybe we do surgery. So now it comes to, let's say they decide they want to do surgery. It's first the meniscectomy where they trim it versus the repair where they try uh, to save it. Now, the idea is that the meniscus has a poor blood supply depending on where it is. So the outside of the meniscus tends to have a little bit better blood flow. The inside tends to have poor blood flow, meaning that they can repair it, but doesn't mean it's actually going to heal. So what I usually say is if a surgeon recommends repairing, I would usually say go for it. Now, I know that's harder because the rehab's slower from the beginning. Sometimes you're not weight-bearing for six weeks. It might be a few months, like six months before you're getting back versus a meniscectomy. Like if they just trim it, you can be back to jiu-jitsu in like a month, right? So it's kind of like the short-term versus long-term, you know, but then it's also like, 
how long do you want to be able to do jujitsu? So a competitor, we'll use like Nicky Ryan, because I actually, I talked about him. He's like an 18 year old kid. He tore his meniscus and he was like, I think he posted something. He's like, I don't know if I want to get the repair. And I'm like, dude, you should get the repair because he's 19. Like he can be doing jujitsu competitively until his like mid thirties. Right. So like for him, like, why do we try to maintain that for as long as possible? And I use his coach's example. Like, what do you think John Danaher would do if he had the option to not need a knee replacement? Right. Because John Danaher has got a deformed knee. They did a surgery when he was a kid surgery in, in New Zealand, like in the eighties, wasn't great. So essentially his knees deformed and he is severe arthritis and he's like, like John Danner doesn't roll anymore because of his knee. Like, what do you think he would give to be able to just train? You know what I mean? So I do think it is important to look at longevity. And then if you also look at like comp- competitive jujitsu, like you're 47 and still competing in masters, like there's people like there's masters seven, like you can do competition, some capacity, you know, like, is it as cool winning master seven as it is adult? No, but like, I don't know you, but like, I think I would like to be able to do jujitsu. Like as long as Helio Gracie, like he was doing jujitsu in some capacity in his nineties. Again, he's not rolling with these young guys, but he's doing jujitsu. And for me, that's what I want. So if you can preserve your knee, I would usually recommend that again, if it's an option, if the surgeon thinks that he can do the repair. Now, still with the knee topic, what about for people who have um, ACL issues and when they say like, hey, you're going to remove the ACL, are you going to repair? What's your view on that? And of course, every case is different, but do you, um, a lot of people are okay with staying without the ACL, but for jujitsu, what do you think? So it, it's not necessarily the, the sport of jujitsu. It's like the person. So there's and, and there is no reason why it just, there's some people that are consi- are classified as copers and there's some that are non-copers. There's some people, they have no ACL and like they're complete, like literally they can't even walk because their knees is sliding all over the place. But then there's some people, and I'm sure, you know, there's like, you know, there's, there's professional athletes, jujitsu guys right now that have no ACL and you would never know. Right. So um, and there, there's like, there's some certain criteria for seeing if you, you are a coper. That's why uh, uh, what, what they're doing now is if someone has an ACL tear, they always they send them with physical therapy first. One, the idea is we want to get rid of the swelling. We want to get the swelling down. We want to get your range of motion as good as possible, even if you need surgery. But then there's a chance that there's some people that again, like, they're like, my knee's good. Like, I don't need it. Like I was working with this one guy, he was a police officer um and uh like he literally could run jump roll like you would have no idea he didn't have an acl but on the mri reports there's no acl so again that's not everybody some people are copers um let's say you're not a coper um you know acl reconstruction is tough um generally when they say reconstruction it's because it's very rare for them to do an acl repair where they take the the remaining acl and they try to stitch it the outcomes aren't great there's some surgeons that are able to make it work but it really depends on where the tear is so if like if the acl tear is like from the bone sometimes that's not, that's a potential but if it tears in the middle which is usual they have to reconstruct it um acl reconstruction is r- rough because you're going to get to this point where usually around like four months when you're doing strength conditioning, like I feel pretty good. Like my knee's moving good. I'm strong. I think I can go back to jitsu. but that ligament isn't ready for stress. You know, like if you look at some of the literature, it can take up to two years for your ligament. So the new ligament to gain the same resiliency it had before injury. Now, a lot of times, like if you tell an athlete two years before getting back to jujitsu, like nobody's going to take it, which is why the return to sport right now is about nine months. And the reason why they do nine months is early on, they had people going back to, to their sport at, at six months, but then the re- retail rates were really, really high. Mm. I think for every month after six months that you wait to go back, like your retail rate drops like 50%. It's pretty significant. And I think about nine, nine months is when um, the retail rates are, are fairly level. So like waiting longer isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily better. Now we can kind of like fast forward and we can talk about jujitsu specifics. Again, it depends on your game. So a lot of uh, 
a lot of knee injuries actually happen from like the scramble and the takedown. So if you're more of a top player, you're more of like a quick, you know, takedown guy, you're going to have more of like a Toriando style guard passing. Like those people, like they might benefit a little bit better from having an ACL, right? Because they have, they have this side to side motion. You need to be able to change direction fast. You know, especially if you're someone, you're the, you're like a knee slice passer, like, knee slice is just one where sometimes people get a little overzealous like their knees are tangled and they just keep going you know versus like potentially if you're more of like a guard player where like really like the the acl does like if you're playing open guard doesn't really matter right because the acl isn't going to be stressed with a lot of things that you're doing so they're someone where again based on their style like they might be able to get away with it you know like i, I think um easton creaseworth um uh What's his name? The, the, the Danaher guy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, wait. I thought you were going to say the, the therapist. Um, no, I don't think, I don't know if I know who we're talking he, about. He's, he's one of the Danaher guys out of mm-hmm. Montreal. Anyway, he just had an ACL surgery, but I think he reported that he had uh, like an ACL tear for three years and he was, he was fine. Um, but he ended up getting the surgery recently. So it's again, like there's people out there that like are fine with no ACL, just based on what they do. You know, I think he started talking recently because the Dan Hur guys are getting into more wrestling. I think lately he might've decided to get the surgery because like now that he's wrestling, like the lack of ACL is a little bit more apparent. You know what I mean? Got it. And the last question regarding to knees. Um, If you wanna share with us mechanically what is happening and if you see a lot, because I've seen um, uh, lockdown injury for the other person you know, yeah. like getting out of it. it. It's most of the time it leads to ACL. Yeah. So uh, a lot of times like with, with those knee injuries, it's like a forced rotation, mm-hmm. you know? So it's again, like with something like the lockdown, like your knee is essentially like they get the lockdown and your knees rotated and then they straighten the knee. And what, what what's really happening Oof. is the person on top is like, they're essentially they're fighting it. So like their knees in a bad position and they try to like, just disregard they try to like force through that's the problem so if someone has a lockdown you kind of have to like respect it like i might concede the position a little bit so that i can bring my heel to my butt and you swivel your hips and then you can kind of get out like i mean the lockdown is one of those things like if you know how to get out of it it's actually not that hard it's the people who don't realize and don't respect it but i think that's everything it's like with a leg lock like in my opinion Leg locks are very safe if you understand when you're in danger and when you're not. It's the people that just, they, they treat it like a straight ankle lock. They're like, well, I'm just going to tough it out. That's when they have the problem. True. Is when they just kind of like, they just don't tap because they're waiting for something to pop. But the problem is, is it's not necessarily something small. There goes your ACL. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I have just one more question here, kind of back to the kids. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of the submissions um, that it's uh, not allowed in the IBGGF for kids is omoplata. And mm-hmm. talking with some, some even IBGGF refs, they say like, man, I don't know why omoplata is not allowed because they see a lot more injuries from Kimura than anything. You know what I mean? Kids get really stretched out or whatever, but still a submission. So do you see much difference, mechanically speaking, from omoplatas and Kimura? Like, no, this one is too dangerous and this one is okay. No, I, I think it's exactly the same. Yeah. The only thing is like the omoplata is like a sweep first, submission second. So it could be that people are like trying to like fight the sweep. So it's like, it's almost like the athlete doesn't recognize the danger because they're like, well, I want to get swept. So I'm going to fight it. But from a mechanical standpoint, I think it's exactly the same. I mean, I know that there's, there's some instructors that would argue that the Kimura is a deadlier or a more dangerous submission than like a heel hook. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, it can really yank it. At least omoplata yeah. is going to be a slow process for the most part. Yeah. You I mean, also I mean. to think too, like from a like a, a technical aspect, like how many people do you know that have like a really good omoplata submission? Like it's not that many. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, again, it's more of like a high percentage sweep. But like I know very few people that have like the omoplata that are actually like submitting people. So I mean, I don't, I don't really see there to be any danger more than a Kimura. So if a Kimura is legal, I think that the Omoplata should be legal. There we go. Uh, now let's kind of shift gear here. Let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and how is for you, uh, when you decided to kind of go in and pursue this, um, 
you know, this field, what are some of the, some of the troubles that I have during your journey to like, to make this happen as an entrepreneur? I, I think the biggest thing is uh, one, because jujitsu for the most part is like an amateur sport. Like now people are starting to get paid, but for the, like for years, like you're not getting money doing jujitsu. And that's why a lot of people go to mixed martial arts. So a lot of these jujitsu athletes have no money. Second, they, because they have no money, they don't actually realize um, the importance of medical care. Again, like, let's say, just like we talked about before is they have an injury, they go to their, their physician, the physician said, okay, you should stop jujitsu. So like, why would I pay money to go see this guy who's going to tell me to not do the thing that I, you know what I mean? Like, so I think that that's the issue is there's so many athletes that don't reach out for care when they should, because let's say you have an injury that like you just pop your elbow. What if we can get that elbow hundred percent so we don't let it become a chronic injury, right? But usually it's it's like with most things that you know, they have an elbow injury, they, it gets popped, it pops again. Now they're starting to have more lingering issues, but like this issue is like a three-year-old issue. If I could have got it early on, it never would be an issue. So it, it's more, uh, the hardest thing that I have is educating the athlete to know um, that physical therapy would be beneficial for them and that it's like they should do it. Like, again, even though there is a financial cost to them that it's overall, it's going to help their long-term performance and longevity in the sport. And what's your vision that you have for, for your brand, for you, for your business on uh, a few years where like what some of the, like the big visions that you have for, for your business? So I, I think that I would, you know, right now I see a mix of, of people. Like I don't just see jiu-jitsu athletes. Like I, I, it mm -hmm. would be very cool if I could have a clinic where all I saw was combat athletes. I think that would be really cool. I mean, in general, I like working with anybody with a goal. Like it, it doesn't matter. It. And an athlete, whether it's baseball, football, whatever, like they have a goal. But it's just like when it comes to a sport, like I don't watch baseball or football. Like I just don't care. But like jujitsu, I watch. Like I like jujitsu. I like mixed martial arts. I like kickboxing. I like wrestling. So it's it's something where, where I feel that, you know, again, like I said, like I have this unique ability to work with them. And, you know, th there are some physical therapists that get burnt out. So there's some people that they'll work with athletes, but they're not necessarily on top of physical therapy. It's like it's like you take jujitsu, like jujitsu is way different than it was. 15 years ago. So if you someone who trains like it's 15 years ago, like their technique might not be good. Same with physical therapy. Like the, the field senior education, right? Exactly. Like it grows and changes, you know? So like, I'm someone like I'm a nerdy guy. Like I stay on top of this stuff. Like I'm, I'm trying to be as good as I can. So I think it'd be really cool if I could work with these athletes full time. Uh, I'm starting to work on some digital products. The the tricky with the trick with digital products is just the fact where the, the general advice is if someone's injury, like I, I can't really answer the question without an assessment. Like you could say my elbow hurts. I don't know what to do without the assessment. And that's usually why a lot of physicians will give that like very basic advice. We'll rest it and ice it because they're like, okay, well, ice is good for pain. Resting means you're going to avoid making it worse. But for real, like if I really want to help your elbow, like I'm like, all right, let's see how it moves. Like, what's the problem? Is it not bending? Is it not straightening? What tissue is limiting you from doing those things? So I, I, I but that being said, um, even if I can't give an assessment, I can still help. So I do have some products out there. Um, so I've, I, I do something called Kin Stretch, which is like a, a body and joint maintenance program. I kind of, build into like why it's useful for jujitsu. Um, so currently I have, I, like one, it. I have one for the legs. I just released one for the upper extremity. So elbows, fingers, fingers are big jujitsu. The next one I'm going to do is, is spine. Um, so essentially how I can work on improving someone's spine. I've been kind of toying around with the idea for doing like a BGJ fanatics video on like how to return to the mat. I just want to make sure that like, that's an idea that people are interested in. Like you have an injury. Now, how do you get back to jujitsu? Right? Like, no, if, if I can't be their physical therapist, how can I at least give them the information or they can give the information to their physical therapist? Cause I've had people reach out to me. They're like, look, the PT here is fine, but they don't understand jujitsu. So they don't know what, it, what, what they, what you need to get back to. So you know, but again, there's a lot of what ifs because I have to figure out like how I can make it work. And, you know, 
I have to make sure that the the athlete realizes the importance of what I'm doing, right? Yeah. Well, and just go ahead. Yeah. So those are some things that I'm kind of thinking about in the future about things I want to work on and where I want to be. Yeah. And just give you props too that I've I've heard, you know, about about your work from two or three people and everyone that mentioned said that you're very approachable and responsible, like responsive on Instagram, which is really cool that it really helps, you know, like your brand and getting, getting the word out. Uh, so back to uh, physical therapy, because you said something interesting about the continued education, right? Like no matter what area you at, continue education. So do you feel, is there anything that comes to your mind like a huge change that maybe 10 years ago people used to treat a certain way and now is different um is there anything that pops to your mind like any major changes you know 10 15 years ago i would say a big thing is the the approach of modality-based physical therapy versus active so you know the the very classic uh like image of physical therapy is like you go into physical therapy they give you a hot pack and then they do some ultrasound, which is like this gel thing. And then you do like an exercise or two, and then they give you some ice with stim. And like, that's what people think physical therapy is, which in my opinion, that is not what physical therapy is. A lot of modalities have a purpose for temporarily reducing pain, but essentially what they're doing is they're addressing um, the symptoms, not the cause. So someone comes with a knee injury, you do all that stuff, you didn't do anything to help the knee. Like you're not helping them heal. You're not helping getting the range of motion back. You're just making the pain go down. So from like a physical therapy standpoint, I acknowledge pain, but I don't treat pain. Like something might hurt and I keep that in mind, but I really focus on the function. Okay, let's get that mobility back. Let's making that joint move the way it's supposed to. Let's getting it stronger and more stable because when that happens, pain goes down. So if you just like, I'm really addressing the cause. Um, so I think that that more active approach is, is important. You know, and like people, like they look at what is the, the best athlete doing, right? And they're like, okay, well, they look at the UFC Performance Institute and they see that the UFC Performance Institute has like all this stuff. We don't realize like the best thing at the UFC Performance Institute is the fact that you have, you know, a head physical therapist who's been working with athletes for 15 years. Like her expertise is the good thing not the the fact that light and laser and all that stuff you know like that's extra it. right so it, it's like uh it's like if, if you have somebody who um like they, they want to get good at jiu-jitsu but they're not actually doing jiu-jitsu like at the end of the day if you want to get good at jiu-jitsu you got to be on the mats right so yeah if you want to get something better from a rehab standpoint it's there's this concept called uh, mechanotherapy, meaning that you do appropriate stress to the tissue, which helps it heal. Because if you think about it, healing and strength conditioning are the same thing. They're just on different spectrums, right? So versus is the, is the tissue that's injured, is it ready to handle certain load? And if it's not, you got to do right. what it can handle versus now the, t- the tissue has the adequate resilience. Well, how can we stress it to make it stronger and better, right? So it's all on the same thing. So I think that active approach to physical therapy is really the way to go. Now, long-term, right? Long-term. Yeah. And I'm not saying you can't use modalities. If, if again, if, if it helps decrease pain, fine. If it allows you to do the things that are important. But if you are only doing the stuff that reduces pain, you're never going to get better. Got it. And what about, uh, that's a common question that people have with regarding to ice and heat treatment and when you to be i don't know suitable i don't know so uh so essentially there's there's two different mechanisms of how they work so what ice does is ice blocks the the pain signal from the injured site to your brain so it just it never gets there which is why it's good for pain um clinically i don't really find that ice is great for swelling If, if, if i if someone has a swelling i would prefer compression um Heat, what it does is it kind of makes the tissue a little bit more pliable. So if you're really, if it's painful because it's stiff, it gets it moving better. Um, that's where it feels better. But again, when it comes to heat, would it be better for you to just do a warm up, or do you need the application of heat, right? So clinically, what I do is I kind of look at the athlete. If they have resting pain, meaning like you're just sitting here and your, your knee or your elbow is just aching, that's someone that where I might give them ice. 
But then you also have to look at the physiological aspect of what does ice do? Well, ice blunts the inflammation response, but that inflammation response is needed for healing. So, you know, and, and there's actually a lot of literature on this where if you look at like when people do strength training and then if they immediately jump into like an ice bath, you just stop to the change of, you know, because again, when, when you do strength training, you stress your body in the adaption, it gets stronger. So if you stop the initial stress effect, you won't get the adaption. Same with healing, right? So it kind of depends on the person. But you have to also look at like, let's say like someone had surgery. Like, so if you had ACL surgery, I don't think you're going to get back to jujitsu for several months. I'm going to deal with the pain early on because I don't feel like it's really going to delay healing enough. Um, okay. You know, um, again, heat and ice. Um, if there is an active inflation, like it's swollen, adding heat isn't necessarily going to make it better because maybe you're, you're adding more fluid to the, the area. So like I said, kind of listen to your body. Um, if you have a high resting pain, that's where I'd consider icing. Um, me personally, I don't like icing my body. Like, I just don't feel like ice is beneficial for me. Some people is very beneficial. So there is that psychological component as well. Like some people really like it. Some people like the fact that they can do something for their pain. So those are someone like when I identify that, like, I would rather you ice so you at least can control your pain versus you're like, man, like every time I do everything, like everything's hurting. It's not getting better. Cause again, you're focusing more on the pain. If I get that pain down, sometimes people feel like they're getting better. And that's usually why that older model of physical therapy, people would keep going back because they go and like, Oh, I feel good. It just lasts a short period of time, but then they keep going back. How do you feel about cryotherapy? So um, what I would say is it depends on how you want to use it. So if, you are going to do like a, a, a technical, like, so if you're training today and you're like, today was more about like training my, like my, your skills, but now you're sore, cryotherapy can be beneficial. But there's some training sessions, whether it's strength and conditioning or like, you're like, all I'm going to do is just roll today because I want to work on my cardio. Potentially, if you ice immediately after, like you do that type of training or you do like a heavy strength and conditioning program, You know, like, again, you might be blunting the response you need for adaption. I think if I remember the literature, I think there's like a four to six hour window. So if like you were going to ice, you got to wait at least six hours. Um, some people love that cryotherapy. Some people don't. From a, a physiological standpoint, it feels good because you're kind of shocking your body. And then people will take that, that sensation and they'll feel like they're recovering. Um, so... If you're going to do it, wait, wait, wait a few hours. Um, you know, that's kind of what I'd say with that. Cool. Cool. Now we're getting close to the end of the interview. I want to ask you to, besides all the information that you study in physical therapy in the medical field, what else do you like to consume? Any, uh, if you read books or, or audiobooks or podcasting, different topics from that, and what do you like? From a non-physical therapy standpoint, so I do uh, a fair amount of reading at night. So I, I feel like one of the things, especially with our culture, we kind of get too addicted to electronic tech. So I like to like read books, usually at night uh, to help me wind down. I'll read more fiction. So mm -hmm. I, I'll do like a lot of science fiction. Um, from like a non, you know, like fiction standpoint, I, I do enjoy like books on leadership. Uh, I got into him because I, I started following Jocko and he's uh -huh. my hero. And then uh, I, even though, you know, I'm not in a leadership role right now, I, I do find it really, really fascinating because at the end of the day, at some point, everyone's going to be a leader in some capacity, whether it's absolutely at home or whatever, whatever yeah, or home. So, you know, because you think about it, it's, it's just how to deal with people. It's, so it's funny. I had a, I got a degree in psychology uh, and people are like, oh, that's useful. It's like dealing with people. I'm like, I really didn't learn that in school. Like, I learned that more from this leadership stuff that I read, you know? So, so those are some of the things that I enjoy. Um, I go back and forth with business. I, I think that's a common thing with entrepreneurs. Like you pick, uh -huh. you pick whatever your topic is, whether it's physical therapy, jujitsu, whatever, and people want to do something. I'm sure, you know, a lot of um, gym owners that are like, well, what do I do? I like doing jujitsu. I'll open a gym, but they have no concept of how to run a business. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's some people that like they might be medi mediocre at jujitsu, but they know how to run a business. So they can still have a successful business versus those world champions that they're awesome at jujitsu, 
but they can't run a business whatsoever. You know, so I, I think doing business education is really important too. Um, in whatever capacity, whether it's, it's it's something small, like, you know, like for me, like, you know, my digital product uh, products versus like something big, like opening a gym, opening a clinic, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about, yeah, because essentially you're, you're teaching jujitsu kind of living the dream, right? Supposedly I could just do, I can just train and then teach. It's all good. And people don't realize what it's like behind to like actually get people through the door, keep them there and pay your bills and pay eventually if you have employees. Uh, There's, uh, do you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Gary V for people not familiar with him, just check him out at Gary V. V-E-E. So I've got a lot of good stuff from digital um, marketing with him and really good tips. I think I, I started following him in 2014. I don't follow as much as I used to, but I got some great concepts uh, with him. So one of them that I never uh, actually forgot, he said something like, uh, there are people who have the entrepreneurial tendencies and some people have entrepreneurial DNA. So the difference is the entrepreneurial tendencies is people like, dude, that would be pretty sweet if I have my business. I'll, I'll have make my own hours and all that stuff. But they, but as soon and if it doesn't go well, they'll be like, I can't always go back to whatever I was doing. And doesn't work, it's okay. So we have the tendency, but it's said like when you have an entrepreneurial DNA, you fail, you break, you, you do another business. You fail, you break, you, you just don't know, but it's just the way you're wired, you yeah. know? So I think it's very important people to like try to distinguish, do I have that? I'm wired like with a DNA that that's all you think. Since I was a kid, I was always kind of like related uh, this way, you know, having a, more an entrepreneurial mind, selling things when I was a kid. That was something that became mm-hmm. natural to me. I never really... Yeah pay attention it's not like i know what an entrepreneur is so i'm pretty uh, positive that i i in this spectrum i'm definitely more into the mm-hmm. uh, the dna but i think it's important people get to know like okay is that what you really uh want is that how you're wired and a lot of people can really develop and improve too yeah. you know if they have more tendencies and you know i i feel that people can definitely improve um other uh, something else to mention about the books that is very interesting about how you read fiction at night. The first time I listened to, uh, heard of people doing uh, this many, many, many years ago, listened to Tim Ferriss. And then he said that I list, I, I, I listen or read um, fiction at night because if I get any content, activates my mind and it's on. And I'm the same way. You start adding content. I'm like, oh shit. So I can do this. I can do that. You know, and it goes bad. So this is a great way. It's a great time to to read fiction. Mm-hmm. And but man, I appreciate your time. Like, there's a lot of good information. I I, I really hope, especially people who are listening. If you know anyone who are dealing with certain injuries, certain certain things that we talked about, make sure to forward this video or this audio. If you're watching this, I start to release not too long ago on YouTube. I always. I always did mainly audio, but I started a few episodes ago, put on YouTube. So forward this this video to someone, forward the the audio, probably even listen again, because there's a lot of good tips. And you can also, as I mentioned, Mike has been very responsive from what I've heard, you know, that people can contact you at doctor underscore kickass on Instagram. Anything else that you want to plug, Mike? So, uh, like I said, two digital products are right now, uh, King Stress for Jiu-Jitsu, upper extremity, lower extremity. Uh, the next product is going to be Spine. Essentially, it's, it's a, a body maintenance, joint health, how to optimize your body, specifically for Jiu-Jitsu. It's a combination of mobility, joint practice, strengthening. Um, again, it's, in my clinical opinion, I think it's the perfect complement to Jiu-Jitsu if you're that person who... You are that recreational athlete who wants to maintain your body for jujitsu, or even if you're that uh, competitor who's looking for that edge, like you want more hip mobility so you can play better guard, that stuff's going to be beneficial. I'm currently uh, trying to get a research project with the, um, the therapist, Ethan Christworth. We're co-writing a, um, a research product a project on um, the safety of heel hooks with the addition to um, 
you know, now that it's legal in IBJF. Uh-huh. So we just went through one big step. So hopefully we can get that paper done and published this year. So I'm really excited about that because I'm a science nerd, but, um, you know, pay attention to that. I think it's going to be cool. So awesome. those are the main things. And Ethan has been in a podcast too before. So uh-huh. sharing his knowledge. So that was uh, really cool. So Mike, and one more time, thank you so much. Guys, have any questions? Can always send me a message. I'll see you all soon. Us. Thanks for having me. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.